You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is my interview with the cinematographer from No Time to Die, Lena Sandgren. Bond, any thug can kill. I have to know I can trust you. Well, I understand double O's have a very short life expectancy. You're a kite dancing in a hurricane, Mr. Bond. Is this really what you want? Always alone? <gasps> we used to be able to get into a room with the enemy. Now they're just floating in the ether. When her secret finds its way out, it'll be the death of you. Oh my God, target enough people. And the people become the weapon. Who is he? James, you don't know what this is. James Bond. Licensed to kill. In love with Madeline Swan. I could be speaking to my own reflection. Only your skills die with your body. And life is all about leaving something behind. Isn't it? Come on, Bond. Where the hell are you? do this there will be nothing left to save I have to finish this you have a flow like this no Let's start off here. Uh, everyone, yep. I am being joined right now by Lena Sandgren, the Academy Award-winning cinematographer for No Time to Die. And Lena's, first of all, how are you doing? Good. Thank you. Good. Glad to hear it. Um, I first want to start off by asking your first film here with uh, Kerry Joji Fukunaga, and it's a James Bond film, and it's the biggest film, dare I say, of your career so far. How does that phone call happen? Uh, how, how, how do you come on board uh, such a project like this? And I know you're in demand, so I, I know yeah. that you know that that's part of it. But I just want to know how this all came together for you. I think it was a combination of uh, different people that Kerry knew had recommended me. I think he interviewed not only me. You know, it was other people in the loop, but. Um, uh, I was just going to, uh, we were just going to release First Man as well, which he was curious on. He had heard about, uh, nice. heard about it. And uh, it just happened that we, on our first call, we just really synced. And that sometimes happened, you know, like you're just very much aligned in his vision of what he wanted to do with Bond very much responded to, you know, how I see it. And I think we kind of, 
uh, grew up with a similar sort of uh, idea about films. Like you can, we both love all kinds of films, all kinds of genres. Mm -hmm. And he also loves shooting on film. Uh, I love shooting on film. He wanted to take this into sort of using, trying to find sort of the, the Bond, look into what is like the soul of Bond, what is the the heart of Bond and mm -hmm. and from all those films that has been done previously and the core of Bond is like visually to him it was like anamorphic 35 it's like it's color it's escapism it's it's adventure yeah. and 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 then in combination with Daniel Craig that brought in all the the more raw uh, and and intimate uh, character uh, that has so much more uh, layers, uh, I think, <laughs> even though I love the old ones for what they are, it's yeah. still like Daniel uh, brought some, some, so much deeper um, emotions to the character that uh, also is important <clears throat> in, in, to, you know, to use in the film. But all we discussed in that first initial meeting was, was great. You know, it was so great. We, we really synced. And I think, that helped, and then they got a private screening of First Man in London. Uh, Michael, Barbara, and, and uh, Carrie, and they saw it, and I think he loved it. So <laughs> we, yeah, that that was sort of they they called me and can you come in? And I was shooting a music video with uh, Emma Stone and Paul McCartney and Emma and 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 uh, Carrie also had just worked together on. On, uh, um, um, what was it called? Was it called um, Ma Maniac, 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 Maniac. Yes. yeah. Yep. And uh, so there was a coincidence uh, in one way. You know, it's always like this. It's like coincidences, and you you come up uh, perhaps in a in a discussion, and and it just synced really well. And and I flew over, and and yeah, I was offered the job, and I I could not resist. I think it was a great <laughs> honor. You know, it's like to me, it's a it's a great honor. It was a great honor to be offered it because I, I I regard them, especially the last films, very highly for its quality. It has like great action, great drama, great uh, storytelling with with Daniel Craig's character acting like dramatic actor, really great. So, and obviously, uh, growing up with with making super eight films as as a as a teenager, you know, um, part of me is very inspired by that type of like from as a teenager from like the romantic adventure and movies like Bond and, and Indiana Jones and so on. But also I had a father who was a distributor of art house films. So I saw a lot of art house film that I kind of, I had like both of it um, in my hands. I went to watch Chinese movies in the theaters. And I, I saw, you know, the sort of teenage or movies that I also appreciated as a teenager. So it was all kinds of inputs and influences in, in my, in my younger years that I think has affected me is in how I regard films and my choices of, of yeah. projects as well. You know, I can, I can see beauty in, in many, many different type of films as well. Yeah. Hey, hey there. there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. 
Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon. You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death Ready. of a Film Star. And action. Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs. You mentioned, uh, you know, some of the work of your contemporaries, Hoyt Van Hoytema, Roger Deakins. It's like yeah. the bar has really been set in terms and of some of this directing. Yeah. Makes yeah, sense. exactly. Like, so I'm curious to know, like coming on board this, Carrie's got his vision. You have your own style. There is precedent and an expectation now for the quality of these films. H- how does all of that come together to create? the look that you all come up with for this film, because I, I have to admit one thing that I really appreciated about this particular film and, you know, comparatively to all the others is that you can tell that they're shot by different DPs. They, they're, they don't have a unified look. They all have a unique look to them. So in that regard, do you ever feel like a sense of pressure or confusion as to like how this should look like, what do those conversations look like? I think, I mean, there's a responsibility to be as great, you know, like as interesting and great and, and so on, of course, because it is a franchise and, and, and also um, just being a really big production um, comes with a lot of responsibility. But I think, I mean, I agree with you. Um, they have distinctive different looks and that's how it, I think should be it's like yeah. interesting that you as a as a team and filmmaker the new filmmakers would give you give uh, their sort of touch on things and in some sort of u- unique way but I just I can just speak for myself I, I I don't think about the previous films when it comes to the look of what I'm doing with this mm-hmm. I I think about this film the way same same way I try to approach any film whether it's um super small film or large i think it's always about you know the script the the vision the vision of the director obviously is sort of the base foundation of of what direction we're moving towards and in this case it was that adventurous escapadic grander larger than life uh, type of film that also had uh, this storyline that is uh, highly uh, emotional uh, when it comes to personal emotions with bond and he needs to be more raw and, and uh, or he needs to be raw and he needs to be um, sort of sensitive as well in in scenes and which a great drama has and i think you with the visuals always have to base your visual storytelling on the actual emotions of the story and not yeah. uh, on the literal uh, story and and so you could think like oh how do you shoot all these big stunts or whatever 
And sure, they're big. So what is the emotions in that scene? It's not, mm-hmm. it's not just that it's big explosions. First of all, it's, it needs to be written so that the, there's a context to why this is scary or why this is thrilling uh, in, in that action sequence, right? So if the action sequence isn't uh, built up by a story that is emotionally you know, affecting you, it's very hard to shoot that anyway. You can't like just shoot a crazy explosion and think that people are going to like it uh, if you shoot it in a cool way. I think that's even disturbing to me when you see films that just uh, you know photograph things for the effect instead of uh, you know for the effect itself instead of the the emotions of of what's going on in the story. Right. So therefore, it, it's sort of kind of with with that approach, you you could still say that oh well this part of it should feel like breathtaking. That's the emotion. It may be just that. It may be breathtaking. That is the emotion. Uh, So how do you do that breathtaking? Well, you just go back to classic, uh, sort of your classic knowledge of classic cinema or how how your interpretation of of that should be. Uh, What Mm -hmm. is breathtaking for you, for me? And Or should a scene feel like still, uh, lots of stillness, then let's photograph it with stillness. Why do you have a dolly shot? You do dolly shot because, because the language of the film that you have decided on, the language that you've decided on for the film may be, may be one thing or the other. So you, for me, it's like important to just kind of go from the start, like you have the script or you have the visual director and the script, the story, and then decide on together with the director um, on the, the visual language. And yeah, and and then just uh, grounded in the emotions of the story that that really helps and but in in this case we had the opportunity or Carrie had opportunity to co-write them the story in such a way that uh, that you could get large you know larger sort of what do you call it like larger um, sways so or like you you go from one one dramatic end to another. It could be like really raw and hard, and then it's very soft and tender uh, between scenes, right? And then that we try to find a way, and he he in the writing tried to find a way to go from a, a cold and icy and um, and isolated and scary, thrilling story, uh, which then takes place in a cold and icy place, and you you take that to something very romantic, which later turns and becomes something really hard and brutal, the same location. But we have that sort of in the story already um, thought of, uh, or Carrie has thought of that in the story, how to let the story move on to become like larger than life as well. And and all of like global and and, and take place all over the world and make it like larger. And, uh, and we just had to be careful about how to um, connect it with the lighting and with the, uh, the, you know, the camera movements or so uh, to what was going on emotionally. And, and some scenes could be like, you know, like we have a very long handheld wonder uh, that is just meant to feel very intense and scary and and it's hard both for the character emotionally, that scene should feel really, really hard for him. And I think making a decision to do it handheld was to make it feel harder for him because on Steadicam or Dolly or Crane, it, it, it actually could have defeated that feeling, you know, not, not sort of describe that feeling. And I think from scene to scene, you just have to be 
careful about that and think about what will this feel like when when we shoot it this way or light it this way <laughs> and and at the same time not necessarily do anything that is just uh, crazy for 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 the effect of it without having the you know the emotions in it so but um but i think that's how we there's combinations of all of that and then how the colors change between different scenes in order to also play with them again the emotions really yeah um so so and 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 get a variation get new colors in the new scene and mm-hmm. there's for example uh, Cu- the cuba streets um you know we shot that uh, in twilight really not rather twilight is like astronomical twilight when the skies are 95 percent black but five percent blue so there's still some color of blue in there and because because also a black sky in, in nights to me feels like contrasty and hard and could describe uh, a scene really well. But in this case, we wanted to also romanticize Cuba. So we we made sure that all the skies were dark, dark, dark blue. And so then as well, when we go out on the water with a with a plane or the the and the boats there, uh, it still is like twilight uh, or or some sort of dusk twilight so that so that you have that color that still uh, gives you the sort of romantic <laughs> action, you know, yeah, a uh, little more uh, larger than life and heightened. And and again, shooting film and anamorphic for for all of that felt to us like uh, very much in in the vein of of of, of the heart of Bond. Uh, the Bond franchise itself is like it's it's the widest, it's the the most colorful they can do. Shoot on film, anamorphic. Mm-hmm. But then on top of that, uh, Kerry <clears throat> introduced the idea that it would be really beautiful to give the audience an opportunity too. If you if you watch it in IMAX, you know that you would see it. Uh, you would see the the image drop below your feet in front of you and above your head, and you're completely engulfed. And so that's why we decided to shoot sequences um, in the film in IMAX, which. They're framed in two for oh, you know, like so. When you when you when you see it, maybe when you saw it, it's like a two for oh image. Um, it's anamorphic thirty five, and then it's IMAX, so it's sharper and 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 um, more detailed, obviously in two for oh, and and it's framed for two for oh, so it works in two for oh. But if you're in an IMAX theater, you get a, you know, it just drops below your feet, and yeah. you see, you you feel like even more engulfed. And that was really. Uh, just an intention to maximize the experience um, for the audience, really. No, totally. I, I totally get that for sure. Um, yeah. We we pretty much reached the end of our time here. So, oh, okay. Linus, I'm going to uh, ask you for a one word answer. Other than No Time to Die, favorite Bond film? Oh, that's so tricky. <laughs> it's so tricky because it's so many, but uh, you know, you grew up with one. I grew up with like Roger Moore when I went to the theaters the first time. So, I, but different times, different. I must say, I don't know. I I feel like I must say the most. I think my favorite. I think is uh, Casino Royale, other other than No Time to Die. All right, and one and one more. Uh, no no explanation, unfortunately, because we ran out of time here. But creatively, most satisfying scene to shoot in No Time to Die for you. Oh, I think actually it was the underwater scene because um, a lot of, you know, that's something that just connected with me since as far as I can remember, uh, you know, uh, seeing Bond movies is like the underwater 
stuff in the Bond movies because they're that actually brought me into scuba diving and and um, and at an early age. So I was very much uh, into shooting that, and I thought that what uh, Chris Corbett, our special effects supervisor, built uh, uh, the construction he did for that set is insane. Like yeah. it's just uh, I've, <laughs> I've never been. You know, he, he's he's just such an inventor, and he. He, he made that set be able to submerge and it's, it's incredible. So I, I agree. It looks amazing. You that done was fun to shoot. Yeah. Yeah. You've done great work on this. Everything that you said rings true, I think, in the visuals here. And we're really, really excited for the progression of your career, reuniting with McKay, Chazelle, and everyone else new that you'll be working with because you're one of the most exciting DPs around. So congratulations on this film. And we look forward to all the future success for you. Thank you so much, Matt. All right. You have a good rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with the cinematographer for No Time to Die, Lena Sangren, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. No Time to Die is currently playing in theaters. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily.